Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. Good morning. It's good to be back at church. Uh, We were out of town last Sunday and then two Sundays ago had the snowstorm, of course, so it's been a while. It's good to, to sing and worship and to see everyone again. I don't know if we have any uh, Chronicles of Narnia fans in our church, but my wife, Maddie, and I read uh, the books through a couple years ago and really fell in love with them. Um, we had read them, or I had read them as a kid, or my parents had read them to me, but I didn't really like them as much until recently. And I'm not a huge fan of books or movies about things that aren't real. So dragons, vampires, anything like that. I'd much rather read a book or watch a movie about something realistic, but I fell in love with the Chronicles of Narnia series. And the reason is not necessarily just because of the stories, but because of the power that they have to teach us about God and the Christian life. So if the books were just stories about kids running around in a mystical world, then I probably would have never re-engaged with those stories. But if you know anything about the books, then you know that C.S. Lewis weaved the gospel message into his stories and teaches us Christian theology in the books. So the result is that the Narnia books are good stories, but they're also stories that are intended to teach us something. And the stories in the Old Testament, like the ones that we've been looking at in First and Second Samuel for a year now, are really similar. They tell us stories, but not simply just for the sake of the story. Their intention is to teach us something through the story. Now, unlike Narnia, of course, the Old Testament stories are true. And unlike Narnia, the Old Testament is God's authoritative word. But in the same way that C.S. Lewis uses Narnia to teach us about God and the gospel message, God uses the Old Testament stories of Israel's history to reveal himself to us and to help us follow him faithfully. So we're gonna cover a lot of ground this week in 2 Samuel as we're moving to the end of our series, and we're gonna have to do a lot of summarizing and skipping over, and these really are good stories. I wish we had more time to look at them in depth. They might be difficult, but they are good stories, but more than that, we're not just here to see what happens between David and Absalom, we're also going to learn incredible truths about ourselves and about our God. So let me just set the stage, remind you where we are in David's story. Basically, everything in David's life is falling apart. Stretching all the way back to David's sin with Bathsheba, it's just been this spiraling out of control, one thing after another. So last week we saw in chapter 13, Amnon, one of David's sons, rapes Tamar, one of David's daughters. Then in order to avenge this act, Absalom, another one of David's sons, kills Amnon. So David now has had one daughter assaulted, one son murdered, and a second son is on the run as a murderer. 
But it still only gets worse from there because David invites Absalom back into the kingdom. He partially forgives Absalom. And then how does Absalom repay David? He sets himself up as a new king in Israel and tries to steal the kingdom from his father. And so that's where we'll pick up the story this morning. We've got David on the run, leaving Jerusalem, and Absalom on his way to Jerusalem, the capital, to try and take over the kingdom. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to read these second stories. We're going to do some summarizing uh, these stories in 2 Samuel, and then we're going to stop to consider three different truths along the way. The first truth is that everyone is a sinner in need of redemption. The second truth is that God will punish evil. And then the third truth is that Jesus is the ultimate victory. And then each time we stop and look at one of these truths in 2 Samuel, we're also going to look at one of David's Psalms that has the same truth or theme in it. What's cool about this section of 2 Samuel is that church tradition and modern scholarship tells us that a lot of the Psalms that David wrote might have been written during this struggle with Absalom. So not only do we get to see the facts in 2 Samuel, we also get to see the emotion behind the facts, and that'll help further our understanding of these principles. Now, just a quick disclaimer about these psalms. We don't know with 100% certainty if these psalms were written during this period in David's life. As I said, church tradition, modern scholarship has looked at these psalms, they've looked at the facts of David's life and said, these things really fit well if they were written during this time period. But since the psalms don't tell us, we can't know for sure. But for our purposes this morning, it really doesn't matter if David is writing these things while he's on the run from Saul or on the run from Absalom, the theological principle is still the same. So we're going to start with the facts in 2 Samuel. We'll see the truth that David expresses in his Psalms. And then what's really cool is that each of these Psalms that we'll look at are also used by New Testament authors to explain the same principle in the New Testament. So we'll go to the New Testament and see how this principle is at work in our lives as well. Make sense? So we'll start with the Psalms, um, and we'll start with 2 Samuel, go to the Psalms in New Testament. There's going to be a lot of passages, so it might be hard to flip through all of them. We're going to have the Psalms and the New Testament passages on the screen behind me if you want to keep your place in 2 Samuel and follow along there. So let's start 2 Samuel 16, verse 1. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, and where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, behold, he remains in Jerusalem. For he said today, the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. So if you were here back in November, you might remember Jeff preaching over this interesting character named Mephibosheth. And back then we looked at these verses and we saw Mephibosheth was, he's crippled, he's Jonathan's son. And when we get to this section, we see that he chooses not to go out of Jerusalem with David. And when, when his servant Ziba comes to David, he tells 
David that Mephibosheth didn't go out with him because he no longer trusts David as the king. And so David, in response to that, takes away Mephibosheth's entire inheritance and gives it to Ziba, just like that. And what we see later on in the story is that Mephibosheth had not actually betrayed David, but Ziba didn't help Mephibosheth go out of Jerusalem, and Mephibosheth was crippled, and so he couldn't have done it on his own. And there's a lot more to this story. If you want to go back and listen to Jeff's sermons from November, you can. But the one thing that I want us to see in this story is that Absalom and Amnon are not the only sinners in this section of 2 Samuel. Even in this section where Absalom is the bad guy, David is the good guy, we get yet another reminder of David's sinfulness too. David is the man after God's own heart. He's the hero of the book of Samuel. He's the greatest king in Israel's history, yet he takes away everything from Mephibosheth, whom he loved, just like that, on bad information. For whatever reason, David makes this rash, hot-headed decision that ends up being the wrong one. So in case we've forgotten about David's sin with Bathsheba, we get another reminder in this section that David makes bad decisions as well. Let's keep going, pick it back up in verse five with uh, this pretty humorous story. It says, when King David came to Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and at the servants of David and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And as Shimei said, and Shimei said, as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. Let's skip down to verse nine. Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, David, why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. And skipping down to verse 13, it says, so David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. And again, it's a, it's a little bit of a humorous story, but let's, let's think about it a little more deeply. You've got this guy named Shimei who's being loud and obnoxious, and he's throwing rocks, but it doesn't look like he's hurting anyone. David's not really concerned with this guy. He's just an annoying nuisance. But then what does Abishai, one of David's soldiers, say? He says, I'm going to go cut off his head. And so again, we see the sinful nature present in every human being, even the good guys in this story. Abishai thinks he's doing the right thing. He's on David's side. He's defending King David. Yet he wants to do something prohibited by the Ten Commandments to take the life of another human being just because this guy is bothering them, flinging dust and cursing. This is just a quick aside, but I can't help but see the parallels here between this story and the polarization that we have in our country today. How often do we see someone post something on social media that we disagree with 
or we see something on the news that we disagree with, or some action is taken in Washington that we disagree with, and instead of doing what David does here and just leaving it alone, we get enraged like Abishai. Hopefully we don't say, let me go over and take off their head like Abishai does. I don't think we'd go that far, but we still get angry by so many things. And then notice something at the end of this story though. David arrives at the Jordan and he refreshed himself. It doesn't tell us, but I doubt that Abishai was able to refresh himself at the Jordan. I know if it was me, I would still be thinking about Shimei. I'd still be dwelling on that encounter, thinking, what should I have done differently? How could I have argued with him? Or what, how, this guy's just could not get out of my head. But David just leaves it alone, even though Shimei wanted to kill him. And the result is that David is refreshed. David's response to those who disagree with him is a far better response than Abishai's. Back to the main point. The main point from these first couple stories that I want us to see, the main principle is that everybody in 2 Samuel is a sinner in need of redemption. Let's look now at uh, Psalm 14, um, which is, we'll see David expressing this same principle. Um, David starts out in the first, we'll just have the first three verses of Psalm 14. The first verse, he says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. So David starts out saying, the fool, the one who says that there is no God is a fool. That person is a sinner. But then he says, there's none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So David says, not only is the person who doesn't believe in God sinner, but when God looks down, he doesn't see anyone who is seeking after God. Now, at this point, as I read those verses, you probably had one of two reactions. You either agreed with David in your mind and thought, yes, David, you're right. We're all sinners in need of God's grace. Or maybe you disagreed with David and thought, really, David? I feel like I'm a pretty good person. I know I do good things what are you talking about? And if you had that second reaction, then you've probably always heard the Christian message that we're all sinners who need a savior, but you probably haven't really believed that. In fact, it might be an offensive message to you because why would Christians think so little of human beings? But here's where I want 2 Samuel, the facts of this story, to inform how we're thinking about this. The Christian doctrine of total depravity, which is that all human beings are sinners who need a savior, doesn't mean that every human being is Amnon or Absalom. Not everyone is a rapist or a murderer. But look at the good people in this story, the good people. The hero, King David, man after God's own heart, takes away Mephibosheth's inheritance, just like that. Abishai, one of David's trusted soldiers, a faithful, God-fearing Israelite, wants to kill someone who's just annoying him. You might not feel like a bad person, and you probably aren't a bad person, but I'd ask you to consider, if you really look at it, whether or not you can see the effects of sin all over your life and our world. Can you identify bad choices that you've made in the past that still affect you or others today? Can you, do you ever get 
angry with other people? Are there relationships in your life that should be better, but because of something you've done or just because you can't be open and honest with people, the relationships don't get better? None of those things are gonna land us in jail, obviously, but all of these things are present in our lives because we're sinful human beings who are not the people we are created to be. My wife and mine's favorite TV show is uh, Breaking Bad. We're actually re-watching it right now. It's just as good the second time as it was the first time, so if you haven't seen it, definitely should watch it. Breaking Bad is the perfect modern-day illustration of the pervasive sinfulness of human beings. So you've got Walt and Jesse, who are the main characters. They're the drug manufacturers. They end up committing murder in order to keep their their sales going. So obviously, even if you haven't seen it, you know those are sinners. They're drug manufacturers. They're murderers. But then what about the other characters in the story? You've got Walt's wife, Skylar, who ends up sleeping with her boss just to get vengeance against Walt. And even though she resists taking the drug money at the beginning, she eventually has no problem using the money for herself. You've got Skylar's sister, Marie, who seems to have it all together on the outside. She's got the perfect job, the perfect house, the perfect husband. Yet when she's shopping and sees something that she doesn't want to buy, she just steals it. You've got Marie's husband, Hank, who also seems to have it all together on the outside. He's the popular DEA agent yet he becomes so consumed with catching whoever is cooking the blue meth that his professional life and his marriage completely fall apart. In other words, both the good people and the bad people in Breaking Bad, in 2 Samuel, and in the world around us are sinners in need of redemption. So where do we see this principle in the New Testament? Well, in Romans, Paul quotes some of these verses from Psalm 14. Paul opens up Romans by chapter 1 saying that Gentiles are sinners who need God. Chapter 2, Jews are sinners who need God. And then chapter 3, he quotes Psalm 14 and says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Paul could not be more clear, and I think, if we're honest with ourselves, our experience of the world is the same. Everyone, everyone is in need of redemption. That's our first principle in 2 Samuel. Let's go back there um, and keep moving. So as David and his men are refreshing themselves at the Jordan after this encounter with this crazy guy, Absalom and his men are entering the capital city, Jerusalem. And what we see is that another one of David's men, Hushai, seems like he's chosen to join Absalom, but later we'll find out that's not really true. So in 2 Samuel 16, 19, Hushai says, as I have served your father, which is David, so I will serve you, Absalom. So Absalom's in Jerusalem, and he starts asking his advisors, including Hushai, how should his, his men go about attacking David. In the beginning of chapter 7, Ahithophel puts forth, or chapter 17, excuse me, Ahithophel puts forth his plan. He says in verse 1, let me choose 12,000 men. I will arise and pursue David tonight. But Absalom isn't convinced that this is the best plan, so he calls Hushai in order to get a second opinion. And in verse 7, Hushai says, the counsel that Ahithophel has given 
is not good. Instead, Hushai tells, that, tells Absalom that David won't be camping with the army. He'll be hiding in a cave. So they should attack during the day when they know that David will be with the army. Then in 2 Samuel 17, 14, we see that Absalom agrees with Hushai and says, the counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. And then the second half of verse 14, we get this really important parenthetical note by the author. It says, for the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. So in case there was any doubt how this story is going to end, here we get a little bit of foreshadowing. Absalom will be defeated by God and David will remain king. And so that brings us to our second principle and it's this, that God will punish evil. In 2 Samuel, we see this play out as the evil rebellion of Absalom is squashed out by God's intervention. But while we, the reader, get this foreshadowing, we get to see God working this situation out for David, David's still camping in the wilderness, fearing for his life. David doesn't know how this story is going to end. And so let's look now at Psalm 28 and see how David might be feeling in this situation. In Psalm 28, we see David crying out to God for help as he's fearing for his life. So he says, to you, O Lord, I call. My rock, be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands, he will tear them down and build them up no more. So we see David crying out to God for God to punish the evildoers. He's asking God to remember, remember God that you hate evil, therefore you should punish this evil that's planned against me. And then in verse five, before David knows the outcome, he expresses confidence that God will in fact tear down these evildoers. This psalm is such a good example for us when we're facing trials. Whether it's evil that's being done against us by another human being like this story or maybe just trials that we're going through because of the sinfulness in our world, we should follow David's example here. We can and we should cry out to God in emotional honesty in our trials. We can and we should beg God to act and to save us from our situation. We can and we should express our fears and even our doubts to God. And like David, we can have confidence that God is working all things out for our good. But there's just one problem. When David writes this psalm, he doesn't know whether or not God will defeat Absalom and let him live. And in the same way, when we cry out to God in our desperate situations, we don't know what the outcome is going to be. So here's where the New Testament really helps us expand our understanding of this principle. Jesus, 
Paul, Peter, and John all directly quote this psalm, Psalm 28, in their writings. But what's interesting is that in all of the uses of Psalm 28 in the New Testament, the application of God punishing evil and making everything right is something that happens when Jesus returns, not something that people see play out in their lifetime. So for example, in Matthew 16, Jesus says, for the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. In Revelation 20, John is describing this vision of all the dead being raised, and he says, they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. In other words, what the Bible teaches us about God punishing evil is that God will absolutely punish evil, but it might have to wait until Jesus comes back. God might thwart Absalom's plan and rescue David, or Absalom might kill David and become king. But what isn't in doubt is the fact that Absalom will be punished in the end. That person who cheats to get the job promotion instead of you might get caught and lose their job, or they might not. But their deeds will be punished in the end. The evil that we see on the news every night or on our social media feeds will be punished. Opposition to Christ and Christianity and the church and our country and around the world will be punished. Students, the hurtful comments that were made towards you on social media or at school will be punished. Even if, that's what the promise is here, even if the evildoers continue to win for now. That's so freeing and comforting for us as Christians, isn't it? There is literally an endless amount of evil things in our world that we can get angry about on a daily basis. And as we've seen, it's appropriate for us to cry out to God to right the wrongs, to fix what's wrong with our world. That's what David's doing here. But what we don't have to do is wonder hopelessly if God will act. Even if we don't see it happen in our lifetime, it will happen. So we don't have to worry about taking vengeance into our own hands. We don't have to allow ourselves to get unsettled and angry over every evil thing we see because God is in control and God will punish evil. Let's finish the story back in 2 Samuel and see how this ends. After Absalom takes Hushai's advice, Hushai quickly tells two priests, Zadok and Abiathar, to go and tell David what Absalom is planning. So we see that Hushai really has been on David's side the whole time. So David receives this news, and in the beginning of chapter 18, David repositions, he organizes a larger army, and he prepares for this battle. But then as the battle starts to take place, it comes to a really odd ending. If you look at uh, 2 Samuel 18, verse 9, we see how this is resolved. It says, and Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. 
And so, of course, David's men come to Absalom, they find him hanging in this tree, and they kill him. And when word reaches David that that Absalom is dead, in verse 33, we see David weeping. David says, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would had I died instead of you, O Absalom. So even though David won the battle and remains king, the story doesn't really have a happy ending. Now, on the surface, this seems like a pretty anticlimactic end to this major struggle in David's life. There's not even really a battle. Absalom just gets stuck in this tree, and that's it. But most commentators think that there's actually something far more significant going on here. Because this word hanging, that Absalom's hanging in a tree, is only used one other time in the entire Old Testament. And that's in Deuteronomy, in the law, where it says that anyone who is hanging on a tree is cursed by God. So the point then is that Absalom rebelled against his father David, he brought God's curse upon himself, and furthermore, God won this battle for David by hanging this cursed man in the tree. David and his men didn't have to do anything. And what's really cool about this is that Paul actually picks up on that same verse from Deuteronomy and says that Jesus, by hanging on a tree, is also cursed. Jesus isn't cursed because of his sin, of course, like Absalom, but because of our sin. Jesus has taken our sin upon himself, become this cursed man, and then hung from a tree. And in the same way, God, this time by the death of David, not by the death of Absalom, wins victory on our behalf. So David's victory over Absalom is just a minor battle in God's redemptive story that is pointing us to Jesus's ultimate victory. That's the last principle that we'll see here in 2 Samuel, that Jesus is the ultimate victory. Absalom hung from a tree, and guess how long David's problem was solved for? Just one chapter. That's it. Then Sheba comes. Sheba rises up. There's a new rebellion. David has another new king trying to take over. But when Jesus hangs from a tree, he wins the ultimate battle. The problem that Jesus is going to solve of sin and death is solved once and for all. The Bible teaches us over and over again that these Old Testament stories that we're looking at in 2 Samuel are true. They're good stories, but they're so much more than that because they're pointing us to Jesus. So as we've done with our uh, first two points, let's look now at a psalm and then a New Testament passage to help broaden our understanding of this principle that Jesus is our ultimate victory. We'll look at uh, Psalm 40. I'll read verses 1 through 3 and then 6 through 9. In Psalm 40, David's declaring this victory that God's given to him. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Then verse 6, in sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me, I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. 
I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. So the beginning of this psalm is pretty clear. David starts out praising God for delivering him from his enemies. But then verses six and seven are a little bit confusing. And the reason I think these verses are confusing to us is because they don't seem to perfectly be describing David. First, David says that God doesn't want sacrifices and offerings. But that's not totally true because David was actually commanded to make sacrifices and offerings, and we see him doing so all the time. So what David's most likely saying is that God desires people's hearts more than their offerings, and that's true, but it's still kind of a weird thing for David to say. Then in the next verse, David says, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book, which is the Old Testament law. It's written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. That's a pretty incredible thing for David to say, that the Old Testament is writing about me. I'm perfectly upholding this law that God has given. When we know that even though David's called a man after God's own heart, he's committed adultery and murder and taken away Mephibosheth's inheritance. So that's a pretty bold claim for David to make. And when the Israelites read Psalms like this, and they found this all over David's Psalms, where he would write something that was like partially true of him, but seemed to be pointing to someone else. And the Israelites called these Psalms Messianic Psalms, because they believed that God was using these Psalms to point towards a coming Messiah who would actually perfectly fulfill what David is only partially fulfilling. So here in Psalm 40, how that would work is that they believe that the Messiah would be the one who truly doesn't have to offer regular sacrifices and one who truly upholds the Old Testament law. And then when we get to Hebrews 10, which is where we'll end this morning, we see exactly who these verses are pointing to. Hebrews 10, 1 through 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they have not ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And here comes the quotations from Psalm 40. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So the author of Hebrews is saying that David was good, but these verses are really about Jesus, who is better. 
David did, in fact, have to offer sacrifices day after day, year after year, because the sacrifices did not actually take away his sin. The sacrifices taught David and the other Israelites about sin, but they weren't effective to take away their sin. But then, according to the author of Hebrews, Jesus came. Jesus said, behold, I have come. And what did Jesus come to do? To be a sacrifice that would actually solve the problem of our sin. So Absalom hung from a tree and David's problem was solved for one chapter, but when Jesus hangs from a tree, he solves the problem of sin and death once and for all. That's what Hebrews 10 is teaching us, that there's no need to offer daily sacrifices anymore. There's no need to run from God because of the shame you feel from your sin anymore. There's no need to try and earn God's love through sacrifices or other good works anymore because Jesus has come. And because of Jesus, a little further down in Hebrews 10, the writer says that we can approach God confidently. Jesus is our ultimate victory. David's victory over Absalom solved one problem, but Jesus gets right to the heart of our biggest problem and takes our sin upon himself on the cross. So in a way, Jesus is the solution to the first two points that we looked at this morning. Everyone needs redemption from sin. And where is redemption found? In Jesus. God will punish evil, but how is that going to happen when we see evil all around us still today? When Jesus returns, he will ultimately punish evil. For those reasons and more, that's why we worship him as our Lord and our Savior. Well, in just a minute, before we take communion, we'll have some reflection questions up on the screen as we do each week. If you've never trusted in Jesus and allowed him to take the punishment for your sins that you deserve, we would love to talk with you about that today. As we reflect, uh, just take a minute to ask Jesus to reveal himself to you, to help you to trust him. And for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, let's, let's celebrate the victory that we have in him. As we reflect, as we celebrate communion together, and as we worship, let's celebrate Jesus this morning. Let me pray. Father, we know that we live in a broken world because of our sin and because of the sin of others and because of the fall of Adam and Eve. And God, you haven't left us without hope, though. We thank you that you sent your son to eradicate sin and suffering and death once and for all. Ask that you would help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, to hope and to long for that day when Jesus will return and make all things new. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us for this redemption sermon. For more resources and information about Redemption Church, visit redemptionokc.com and follow us on social media.